Hi, listeners. There are one or two swear words in this episode, so if you are with someone who shouldn't hear that or doesn't want to, you have been warned. So it kind of feels like you're never really fully switched off. I think that's the biggest challenge in the lead up to Edinburgh is you just can't really relax because you always feel like there's something I could be doing. And even if it's not something like admin wise, it's like I should really be working on my actual show because, you know, they got to a point where I hadn't actually touched my show for a few weeks. And I was like, this is the most important thing that I'm doing is bringing this piece of work. And that kind of almost took a backseat while I was trying to get all these other ducks in a row. So I think it's really easy to actually get burnt out before you even get there. That's Neve Denyer, a self-producing artist preparing for the 2023 Fringe, which is still a few months away in our story. We met Neve and Hannah Crawford in the last episode as they prepare to go to the Fringe for the first time in their own ways. Neve with her own solo show, Get Blessed. Hannah has been to the Fringe many times in various roles, from producer to performer, but this will be the first time under her own company, Thistle and Rose Arts. Edinburgh seemed like the obvious thing to do for us to launch as a company because I know it so well and I've spent so much time there and I know the ground. I love it a lot. Edinburgh is also a little bit like childbirth. It's the most painful thing you've ever done. You're fucking knackered. Everyone's screaming. It's awful. And then you get to the end. For the next two months, you're still in pain, you're still recovering, and you're still dealing with the fallout of that situation. And then by like month three, you start to look back on it. You're like, oh, but look at what we have now as a result. Do you know what? I think we can do that again. Why don't we go back next year? Let's have another baby. And then you do it again. As Neve and Hannah navigate their way to the fringe, they face the biggest challenge in almost every artist's journey, cost. I absolutely love the Fringe. Like the atmosphere there is incredible. It's amazing to be able to do stand up every single day and also in like this arts kind of mecca. But I just think on a practical level, nothing is guaranteed in in the art. Sometimes you hear stories of people that spend a lot of money on the Fringe year after year and don't necessarily get what they want from it. Because I think it's that sunk cost fallacy. It's like, well, I've already lost this much, so I need to play again. And then you realize that is literally the logic of people with gambling debt. (laughs) It's how you lose your house. (laughs) That's Daisy Earl, a stand-up comedian we heard from in episode one. When I started on this podcast, it became clear that I was going to have to dedicate an entire episode to cost because it is such a huge and complicated aspect when it comes to the fringe. I think one of the big misconceptions from the the public, certainly, is when people are charging £20 tickets, that performer is charging a lot of money. They must be making a fortune out of this without realising how much of that gets divided up between press, promoters, venues, and everything else. And then at the end of it, the actual performer that's charging £20 is losing money. My name is Alex Petty and I run Laughing Horse and we run the free Edinburgh Fringe Festival. Before a first audience member has appeared, the artist or company has likely paid for advertising, including flyer and poster printing and placement, PR, travel if they don't live in Edinburgh, rehearsals, set, costume, registration costs, venue costs, living costs, both where they usually sleep and in Edinburgh, and a technician to make sure the lights go up and down and music works when it's supposed to. This can vary if you're talking about a theater show versus a stand-up show versus cabaret and drag. You can also have other costs like producers, directors, sound, lighting, and 
and set designers, and general production assistants. You could easily be looking at 10 to 15,000 pounds, and that may be only for a solo show. The Fringe was always supposed to be the everyman's festival that anyone can perform at and anyone can go to see shows at, and you don't need to be a theatre buff or a professional company to bring a show. And I think that's always what has made the Fringe so vibrant and interesting. And I think we're at risk of losing that if the interesting shows are being priced out. That's Sam Irving, creative director of and performer with Spontaneous Potter, the improvised Harry Potter parody. Sam has been performing at the Fringe for 14 years and is saying what most people say about the Fringe these days is getting too expensive and pricing artists out, particularly working class artists. It's becoming pay to play. People say it's elitist. People say it's too expensive. People say that the venues are making all the money and that we're ripping off the artists. People say that council is ripping off the venues or the university's ripping off the venues. My name is Anthony Alderson. I am the director of the Pleasance Theatre Trust, which means running a venue at the Edinburgh Fringe. What I would love is for somebody or any of the people who've said any of those things, and there are a great many, and those myths go on and on from one year to the next. Nobody ever digs deep into this stuff at all. In this episode, I will do just that, or at least try to dig deeper on costs and funding, specifically on the two biggest and most contentious costs at the fringe, venues and accommodation. It will help you understand better what Neve, Hannah, and everyone involved with the fringe and the city has to balance and how they try to make it work. Get a cuppa, take a long walk or drive, and get ready for a whopper of an episode. I'm Molly Merwin, and this is Fringe Benefits Edinburgh, a story of the Edinburgh Fringe Festival. The advice I got at the time, which I'm sure still holds true, is that you have to decide what your objective is when you go to Fringe. Are you aiming for audience numbers? Are you aiming to make money, which is pretty much the same thing? Are you aiming for good press, good reviews? for awards. You have to choose. You can't have everything. It's so rare that everything comes together. So for me, I did not win on ticket sales. My ticket sales, I think we barely made our, what was it, retainer? We barely made that. I'm Christina Murdoch, and I am the creator of Dangerous Giant Animals, which is a solo theater show. So my goal was awards and reviews. I wanted press, basically, in one form or another. So I knew I needed a top venue because if you're at one of the top four, you're just you already have clout. People disrespect it more for better, for worse. They know you have to be at a certain level to get into those venues. Dangerous Giant Animals is the show I worked on in 2018. And Christina said something very crucial. When you go to the Fringe, you have to decide what you want out of it. This was repeated by almost every person I spoke to about the Fringe, for performers and for punters. It goes back to what Daisy was saying in the beginning. People who don't know what they want can spend and spend and then not be happy with the end result anyway. 
To meet her goals, Christina felt the same way most artists feel when going to the fringe. The venue you choose, or rather chooses you, can make or break your show. The big venues provide the infrastructure, sometimes literally by putting up structures for shows or rearranging buildings, but also box office, front of house, and advanced tech when needed. They can elevate your clout and help with marketing, publicity, and PR. Many artists, including Neve, feel it's a bit safer to be at one of the big venues if you're going for the first time. I really wanted to go to one of the big venues. I don't know why. I just kind of felt like, look, I don't know if I'm going to do this again. I kind of just want to go and kind of have that, not the protection of a bigger venue, but just kind of like, it's already scary. I'm just going to go try and get into one of the ones that I know are like quite established. She makes a fair point. The big venues have been established at the Fringe a long time and know their stuff. When you hear the big four, that is the Pleasance, Assembly, Underbelly, and the Gilded Balloon. There's also Summer Hall, a year-round arts village in Edinburgh located in the former veterinary college, so it comes with clout as well. A lot of time when people say the big venues, they are talking about the big four and Summer Hall. I want to point out these are not the only venues and operators. However, as I said, the fringe is a vast lake and I had to focus. So for right now, I'm going to focus on the big five. Assembly was the first multi-venue operator back in the 80s. I acted in one play, I directed another. We lost the keys to the venue, so I ended up sleeping in the venue to try and keep it secure. We all did everything. I did front of house alongside box office and alongside running the venue, as alongside acting and directing. So it was one of those kind of mad fringe experiences that no one in their right mind should do. I'm William Burdick-Foots. I'm the artistic director and CEO of Assembly Festival. Then the following year, I, I thought I'd go back with another show and the director of the Fringe at the time said, uh, why don't you go look at the assembly rooms? So I went down to George Street and I went and looked at uh, one of the rooms in there called the Wildman Room, which I liked the name of. I approached the council about it and, and they said, do you want the whole building? So my stupidity, I thought, why not? So I was touring with a, a production where I was production manager and uh, we were playing in the uh, Old Vic and I sat in the dressing room at the back of the Old Vic and I booked a program of shows and I ordered all the equipment without a penny to my name and um, it's grew from there really. That was a long time ago, back in 1981. I love early fringe stories like these. William and his team were everything from box office to performer. It also shows how much the fringe has changed over the years. William decided kind of last minute to go and check out the fringe. In his second year, he programmed the shows shortly before the fringe. Now it's quite different. Artists have to apply months in advance. So I had to apply for venues. That was a bit scary as well because I think I was slightly late applying. I don't really know what the rules are. I feel like you're supposed to have applied by like February or something. No, I think you're supposed to reply by January. I think I got it in at the end of February. No, it was mid-February. It must have been mid-February because I think I had about two weeks lead in before like all my kind of deadlines, like your poster and oh, your image for the website and all of that stuff. Whereas I think some people that already knew in like December or January that they were going to go to Edinburgh. And, like it's so early. Neve first applied to the Pleasance and then was accepted by the Gilded Balloon. And while January and February may seem early for artists, for venues, as soon as one fringe ends, the next fringe begins. All of this festival is spent talking to people about next festival. The constant process of iteration. We, we open seriously for bookings around November. That's William again from Assembly. But the conversations start and it continues throughout. So there were conversations for this year that will be for next year. It's never too late normally. I think the, the best thing to be doing is to be getting a conversation going as soon as possible. 
to be seriously looking at it in November and trying to get something organized probably for around January, February time. We try and get the programs fairly heavily penciled by the beginning of March, but it then settles down and gets firmed up for April and then normally goes to the print at the end of April. But then we're still programming things up till July this year. These operators have been around. They know their stuff. They have worked with thousands of performers and shows throughout the year. The individuals that run them know Edinburgh because they have been there year after year in some capacity as a performer, director, or venue. They all put on shows throughout the year outside of Fringe, the Gilded Balloon, Assembly, and Summer Hall in Edinburgh, and Underbelly and The Pleasance in London. It's sort of madness in a way. Anthony again from The Pleasants. I always describe it as, you know, Edinburgh takes 12 months to put on and three months to clean up. And then London we do in the other 12 months of the year, of which there aren't. It's the same team who does both bits. There's a few people who work in London, but it's programmed by the same people. It's the same charity. It's the same governance structure that looks after both bits. And they work in complete symbiosis. I mean, we need London to get from one festival to the next. It's a place to keep that core team together. And actually, why not develop work, develop shows? So London is really a development center. These venues bring clout not just because they have a big footprint and name recognition, but because they can be particular about the shows they choose. If they choose your show, it's because they think there's something about it. As Sam Goff from Summerhall said in the last episode, It's potentially brilliant bonkers, but it, it's from the heart. So it's got a reason to exist. And if it's potentially brilliant, it also means it will potentially sell tickets. Anthony again from The Pleasants. We're really, really picky. Interestingly, we don't run the bar. So, you know, that huge bar activity that happens, that's run by Edinburgh University. So the finances that come through the program is how we survive. And so that program is really, really important to us. But with the big venue, there are costs. I'm going to let Hannah Crawford of Thistle and Rose Arts take this one. There are lots of people that would argue that your footfall or your marketing potential is going to be higher in one of those venues. It's not always the best decision. Not every one of those venues has a ticketing deal profit split. So the more tickets that you sell, yes, the more money that you'll make, but also the more money the venue will take. Depending on which venue you're at, well, this will vary slightly, but a lot of venues, we talked about sort of the ticket split and the venue taking 40% and the artist taking 60%. But alongside that ticket split, the venue will always have a minimum guarantee, which basically covers the venues. If you don't sell any tickets, then they're not ever going to make 40% of nothing. They're going to make a minimum of however many thousand it is. And you have to pay in advance of the festival. You have to pay things like your registration fee, your marketing fee, and then a number of deposits towards that minimum guarantee number. So depending on the size of your venue, an artist could be looking at putting down anything between a thousand and six thousand pounds in advance of the month just to pay to have your venue. Got that? So the venue has a guarantee or facility fee. That's what Christina was referring to when she said retainer. The venues base their facility fee on expected minimum attendance, usually calculated at an average of 40% capacity across the festival. Here's where I'm going to use some easy maths. If you're in a 50-seater selling tickets at £10 each, that's £500 if you sold out. But they don't expect that. So they think you'll sell 40% of your room, or at least they hope you'll sell 40% of your room. And their guarantee is 40% of that, which is £80 per day times 27 days of the festival. So your guarantee for this room in this particular example is around £2,160. But as the size of your room goes up, so do your costs. Sam Irving of Spontaneous Potter may explain it better. 
they will take that much money from ticket sales or they will take 40% of ticket sales, whichever is greater. And when we were in a 350 capacity venue, that was 17,000 pounds. So the first 17,000 pounds of ticket sales, we didn't see a penny of effectively. And then at that, from that point onwards, we were taking a small cut. And then once we hit two and a bit times 17,000, about 40,000, we were taking 60% of ticket sales and the company were taking 40% of ticket sales. And that's not including things. There's additional fees for being listed on the website, being listed in the book, but not just the fringe guide, but also the venue's own guide that uh, has a cost as well. There's additional costs for hiring microphones or other tech that isn't explicitly included with the room that you book. So the costs pile on and pile on, and then the thousands of pounds that we put into marketing every year. So for companies who are, even if they're in a smaller room, if they're not hitting that 40% attendance, their profit is just dwindling immediately. Some of the venues are trying to change this where they can. The Pleasants, for example, this year took 5% less from artists in the box office split. And in the smaller performance spaces where it will be harder to make the guarantee, they removed them and just did a box office split. If the venues are making tons of money, I'd love to know where it is. Anthony again from the Pleasants. We're a public charity. You know, our accounts are online. We lost 100,000 last year. We lost 200,000 the year before that. We've had some years where we've made it back. We've made some years where it's grown and we're always trying to push the thing forward. But what would be the point in me screwing over artists? They wouldn't come back. What we do is we have a very simple deal, which is we will build the venue, we will build the infrastructure, and you can bring the shows and we'll split the box off. You'll get most of it and we'll get our share and hopefully it'll be enough. Venues only get 27 days in which to make that money. And if we lose, then the infrastructure falls apart and it's got to be paid for somehow. What my job is to make sure that we're not taking too much of that pot and that we're supporting artists. But what if you have a small budget or you can't put a lot up front for a guarantee or you just want to get up to Fringe and try something out? So Free Fringe is quite different. I would really recommend Free Fringe. Stand-up comedian Daisy Earl again. You obviously pay your Fringe registration as normal and then you pay a registration fee to the Free Fringe. And then you do everything yourself. There's a sound desk and a microphone and everything you need. But if you need a tech, they can help you find a tech. But because stand-up is just basically music before and then turning the mic on, I always tech my own shows. And you obviously you market it yourself like you are in the free fringe guide and stuff and you do your own door. So in my case, because I was sharing with another comic, we just shared doing the door because we'd switch who went on first and who went on second. But other than registration, everything you earn is then yours. So I think we broke even in terms of what we'd paid within the first maybe four or five days, like after the first weekend, because you're just paying a lot, lot less. And also you're not giving a split. So everything you make, you, you keep. It just felt like a lot less pressure. There's always been free shows at the Fringe in the form of busking. That's street performers singing, playing guitar, doing acrobatics for free, then sending a bucket around to collect money. In the late 90s, Peter Buckley Hill started the Free Fringe, known as PBH Free Fringe, that in a way took busking indoors. In the early 2000s, PBH Free Fringe and Laughing Horse Comedy joined forces. Laughing Horse has started running comedy shows in London in 1999. And we got into the Edinburgh Fringe more as producers wanting to run our own shows to see if we could expand what we were doing, running comedy gigs, comedy shows, comedy corporate stuff. 
by putting events on the fringe. And we face the amount of cost to hire venues and things like that. Alex Petty of Laughing Horse Comedy and the Free Fringe again. So we, we started to look and, and try and work out if that was the best way or not. And that's when we started to see the free shows occurring. And that's when we thought, is this a model? Is this something that could work for us to put on and, and produce Laughing Horse shows? And over a couple of years, it turned out it was. And it's something that we felt benefit a lot of performers. And that's how we got more into being a festival venue promoter and producer and we expanded most of our program is still comedy but we've got a lot of theater a lot of cabaret children's shows so we program now right the way across the sort of spectrum laughing horse free fringe and pbh free fringe are now separate companies but they are still the two biggest free fringe producers i like the spirit of free fringe as well because i also Edinburgh's become a really expensive festival, not just for us as performers, but also for the audience, because it's expensive for them to travel to Edinburgh. It's expensive for them certainly now to stay in Edinburgh. I really like the idea there's free shows. And I like the idea that it's kind of a tipping system. So people that have the money, they would leave and give us 20 quid. But then there were other people who might give a couple of pounds and that's fine because they also gave us their time. They were a good audience member. And if that's what someone can afford, I'm really grateful to have it. I think it evens out because some people overpay, some people underpay. You end up averaging maybe £10 a person, which is not far off what you would have charged. At least if someone gave me a fiver, they are actually giving me a fiver. But my question for Alex was, how? Venues have running costs. How and why is theirs so inexpensive? So we provide a basic sound system, basic lighting. So you're not getting all the bells and whistles that you would do in a venue you're hiring for £6,000. But for a lot of performances, for a fringe shows, the question will be, do you actually need that all the time? Are you paying for, for things that you don't need? So we, we've got a lot less costs. We also take over venues that exist in Edinburgh all year round, be it pubs, be it nightclubs, be it small theatres, places like that. So a lot of the infrastructure already exists. The venue provides the costs. We also get the venues. We don't pay a higher fee to the venue, like a lot of the big production companies do when they, they're, they're building their venues from scratch. It means that all the overheads and all the costs are a lot lower for us. We ask the performers for a small contribution each to go towards the costs. That amounts to this year £130. And then they choose either to do the show free and unticketed or pay what you can with tickets. And then they get all that's on the door. So they're, they're paying out a lot less to get a venue that's a, a, a basic standard. The venues are happy with a, a huge increased footfall through the fringe. They're all buying drinks. What's in it for them is getting hundreds and hundreds of people through a day buying the drinks. So we don't pay to go to the venue. They let us have the room for nothing. But our deal is we're obviously putting in shows that are going to maximize audience numbers to then bring people through. Free Fringe can provide a lower barrier of entry. Take Sam Irving from Spontaneous Potter, the improvised Harry Potter parody. His show didn't just start out doing 350-seater venues. He and his castmates hustled in smaller venues, sometimes with eight people in the audience, for years. They were experimenting, doing other shows, building an audience with a bucket at the end of the show for people to pay what they could. When they decided it was time to do a bigger venue, they felt they had the support financially and the audience to do it. Now they sell out or nearly sell out shows. Another interesting thing about Sam's show is everyone gets paid. It's an improvised show, so they don't have rehearsals or big sets to worry about. 
They do have pretty cool robes and wands, as any respectable Harry Potter show would. But everyone except for Sam lives in Edinburgh, so no accommodation costs, as Sam usually with his brother or one of his castmates, and they only need to pay for Sam's train travel. But even for Sam and his company, who are doing relatively well in fringe terms, costs are becoming a factor. After years at one of the big four, they moved to another venue. So we are with the, the Stand Comedy Club this year. They run comedy clubs in Glasgow, Edinburgh, and Newcastle year round. And we performed with them outside of the Fringe before. And yet cost was the main reason. They have zero upfront venue hire costs and their ticket split 70-30 rather than 60-40 in favor of the act. Some artists take a two-prong approach. They do one show at a big venue and another at Free Fringe. Aaron Simmons is a stand-up comedian doing just that. When I did my debut, I was quite lucky. I, I worked up until Edinburgh, so I sort of bankrolled myself with my, with my day job. And then I paid for all the costs before Edinburgh. And then it sold well enough that it didn't cost me a couple of thousand pounds extra on top of that. But yeah, I didn't make money that year. The size of venue that I do at the paid fringe, with the way that I do it, I can't make money. Because I spend money on PR, money on production, money on a director, you just can't sell enough tickets to make that money back. I do two shows a day to break even, and that's the only way that I can afford to do the festival. But Aaron doesn't mind. Professionally, every good thing that happened to me last year came as a direct response to me doing Edinburgh last year. I was very lucky. I got some corporate gigs off the back of it. I got some cruise gigs off the back of it. So it did pay for itself, and I did get more money because I came to the Fringe. I'm very lucky to be able to earn enough money to justify being able to do it. My belief is that you have one crazy month where you don't make any money, and then you have 11 nice months. Venues are a balancing act. Certain venues may help with the profile of a show and provide an infrastructure for an artist to launch from, but other venues may give an artist a lower barrier of entry and the ability to take chances without taking a lot out of the bank. But how can you even start to think about a venue if you can't even afford to stay in Edinburgh? I think it's something that's always been a problem, the funding of the Fringe. At the same time, I think if you play it right, you can make it work. I think at the moment, it is particularly a crisis coming out of COVID. I think that not only have we had a couple of years where it just hasn't worked, so there's debt that you've had to pick up to carry on. But equally, the costs that everyone is facing now because of inflation at every level is horrifying. And then if you add accommodation on as the cherry on the cake, rather bad cherry, you end up with a, a scenario which makes it very, and does make it very unaffordable. We look at the worst cherry at the French, accommodation. Yeah, accommodation is silly. That's Zachary Willis, an actor in After the Act, a musical about Section 28 at this year's Fringe. I know we were quite late getting offered to come up to Edinburgh. We did a run at the new Diorama Theatre in London, which was early on this year. So they decided fully we were coming up in April, which is really late. I think a lot of people, you tend to think a year plus in advance if you're going to go to Fringe because you're like, I need to fundraise, I need to like know where I'm going and also if you book accommodation a year in advance it's cheaper. One of the run, uh, people that run the company was looking and one estate agent she went to said what are you coming to Edinburgh for and said that we're performing and they were like we're going to be so far out of your budget we only really deal with corporate clients but we'll send you our prices and it was like 43 grand for a three bed and just silly because I think 
if it's like Airbnb, 43 grand split over a, a month doesn't seem that much if you're coming up for a week. Where we are now is a six bed and it's around 13, 14,000, I think, which is crazy money for Who's a month. The company is. And, but we got funding to do it that has to be paid back. I, don't, I honestly do not understand how new companies bring their work up here and fundraise to do that, especially when you're a brand new show, brand new company that no one's ever heard of. We were so lucky that we had people who'd seen the show and there was like talk around it in London, whereas there's lots of people, they just come and you're, there's like how many, like 4,000 shows on here? It's like, how are you ever gonna stand out in that? And also you're fronting these crazy costs. It's such a personal risk certainly the biggest risk I think to the festival and it's a very tricky balance because on one hand as people that live here in this city and I am in support of what the legislation that's coming in is trying to do it's trying to make sure that our city centre is not hollowed out that the people that live here have good quality places to live so I'm Lindsay Jackson and I am the deputy chief executive of the Edinburgh Festival Fringe Society but what we're seeing and what we've been seeing for years is accommodation prices increase and there's not really any space or place to control that because we're talking about private landlords with commercial interests in property and the property market in this country particularly has been a major economic driver and has been massively supported. In June, two months before the fringe, I looked for a six-bedroom flat in Edinburgh. I wanted to see how much a flat would be outside of August. I found one about a 30-minute walk from city centre and most of the venues. It was £3,000, so about £500 per person. Pretty reasonable. I also found a two-bedroom for £1,200, so £600 a person. Again, pretty reasonable. Then I looked for a flat for six people in Edinburgh during the month of August. I found one about the same distance to the venues, but it was a three-bedroom and cost £7,500. That comes to 1250 per person. So not only was it more than twice as much, but everyone would have to share a room. And each person will have to pay that in addition to their rent or mortgage back home. Neve was fortunate as she had a friend in Edinburgh who was planning on staying at her partner's place for the month. And so she's got a one-bed apartment. It's not central, central Edinburgh, but like it's, I think it's a fine location to get in and out of town. I feel like that's the only thing with this. Like a lot of things just kind of have fallen into place in like a really weird way that keeps giving me that sigh that like, you're doing the right thing going, you know? And like, I feel very fortunate that I got a big venue said yes. And then the accommodation was fairly easy to sort, which like I'm very grateful for because I know it's not like that for everyone. Neve later told me she and her husband, who is also an actor and took a show to the Fringe again this year, paid £1,800 a month. Accommodation is not only directly affecting artists, but also indirectly. A lot of artists come to the Fringe not only to be seen by an audience and decision makers, but also by critics. Reviews help your visibility, get other critics and audiences in, potentially turn the tide, and bring awards. But what happens when even the critics can't afford to come? In a July 2023 article in The Stage, a UK industry trade paper, Lynn Gardner, well-known theatre critic who covers The Fringe extensively, wrote that she was having to reduce her time at The Fringe as it had become too expensive to stay. She also wrote that publicists were telling her that other critics were saying the same thing. If critics are cutting their time, then they are cutting the shows they are able to see. Would Fleabag and Phoebe Waller-Bridge be household names if they hadn't received as many awards and reviews at the Fringe? Phoebe Waller-Bridge is the honorary president of the Fringe Society this year and put her name and influence behind the Fringe. She could be seen spotted around town at shows trying to support the Fringe. 
It seems she knows how important it was to her career and other artists. But if people can't afford to see the shows, how important will it continue to be? Hannah of Thistle and Rose Arts has her own strategy for accommodation. There's half a million people that live in Edinburgh year round. And all of those people, a lot of them have spare rooms. And a lot of them have, you know, university accommodation, which is then free in the summertime. There's lots of ways of finding far cheaper accommodation. But I think lots of people who don't know the ground, who haven't been to Edinburgh before, who don't know anybody that lives there. It's such folklore about the festival that accommodation is the most expensive thing that people are almost happy to pay four grand for a room for a month because that's what they've been told. That's just what it costs. And that's the only thing you're going to find. Trying to tackle the accommodation problem, Assembly took on two Edinburgh University buildings and let it out to their companies at a reasonable rate. We're all trying to do things that we can to help make that work. It's not the best accommodation that there is, but it means that it is affordable to be. And that's one thing that was going on equally. I know other people are doing that sort of thing as well. I just think it's important that people will be able to continue to be able to do it. I know what you're thinking. Why isn't the government doing anything? The Fringe and other festivals bring millions to the economy. The Fringe also brings huge value to the arts and provides a platform for thousands of artists to experiment and develop their careers. The festival could collapse. I mean, that's what I thought, and a lot of other people are saying and thinking. And the government did do something, just not what you may think. In 2022, the Scottish government introduced legislation that would require short-term lets to apply for licensing. The legislation was confusing and costly. The license requires hosts of secondary lettings, like second homes or a series of flats, that are used as short-term lets to pay a fee. It was intended to protect students and Edinburgh residents from the rising cost of housing because while those involved with the festival are dealing with rising costs, so are the residents of Edinburgh. Like many parts of the UK and the world, Edinburgh is facing a housing crisis. So I am a huge supporter of the need for short-term lets in the city, and I'll say that. But we want to balance between the people who want to live in the city and we have an acute shortage of housing. So I'm Cammy Day, I'm the council leader. I've been the council leader now for about 16 months. So it's a new role for me as leader of the council. It's the best job ever and it's exciting. Somewhere between four and 5,000 people every day are in temporary accommodation. Whilst we've got maybe eight months of the year, properties lying more or less empty. Now the legislation that's came through is probably a bit further than what we needed it to say. Four to 5,000 a day in temporary accommodation. In other words, four to 5,000 homeless in a city of just over half a million. But the legislation also required licensing for people with a spare room. It creates a barrier between people who have room and people who need it during the fringe in an already saturated market. In June of 2023, a Scottish Court of Sessions declared some parts of the legislation unlawful. For a moment, it looked like the legislation may not go through. People were left further confused in August when Cammy Day said on BBC Scotland he would support a delay on the deadline to apply for licensing. He then had to go on Twitter or X or whatever it's called these days to clarify that the deadline was set and, quote, we couldn't change it. When I spoke to Cammy Day, who is a member of the Labour Party in August, before he spoke on BBC Scotland, I told him about the two flats I had found, one being six bedrooms and £3,000 a month outside of August, and how the three-bedroom during August was more than twice that much. If I was being blunt, I think some people are abusing it. I think some people are ripping off fringe performers and visitors to the city by extortionate costs during that time. I think that's unfair, but... That's a market pressure and I can't control that. Sadly, if I had the powers to control it, then I would. But we don't have these powers in the council. But if not the council, then who? Could the council introduce rental caps? So we couldn't cap the price of accommodation unless the government allows that to happen. I asked Kimmy if he was concerned that accommodation 
was becoming too expensive. And I also told him some people were concerned the festivals may have to leave the city. I hope that doesn't have to happen. And if it's genuinely become an issue that accommodation prices are being abused, then, then we will seek to rectify that by asking for legislation to change it. I have no issue with the short-term providers without them um, making profits. Of course, that's our business model. But ripping people off to come to the city is not acceptable. And if it was to become a problem where we're having pressure on our festival, saying things can't continue, then I would undoubtedly be right to the government to say we need to talk about this. So yeah, I would commit to the industry that if that genuinely, if there is evidence that this has become a real issue, then we would try to intervene. I was a little surprised at this. There has been wide reporting on the rising costs of accommodation by major news outlets such as The Scotsman, The Stage, The Independent, and The Guardian, to name a few. I have also been told that the wider festival community has lobbied for more affordable accommodation. I do want to add that the council leader was overall very positive about the festivals. We talked about shows and what the festivals bring to the city. When you think of the huge economic benefit to the city, it, it, it creates thousands of jobs in the city that run hotels, bars, restaurants and everything else that goes along and, and, and maybe more excitingly it gives young people an opportunity to do something quite wild actually. I think it's quite exciting. As of October 1st, 2023, anyone wanting to take short-term letting bookings has to apply and pay for licensing. If you are already making short-term bookings before the 1st of October, 2022, you can continue to accept bookings until your license is accepted. Any host that does not apply for a license could face up to a 2,500 pound fine. But the fight over the legislation continues. Uh, my name is Tommy Shepherd. I'm the Member of Parliament for Edinburgh East, one of the five Westminster constituencies in the city. I have been since 2015. And before that, I was the full-time owner and director of the Stand Comedy Club. I agree that was the right thing to happen. This accommodation does need to be regulated, and we do need to look at the needs of particularly young families in the city who cannot get a place to live because that's essential for them and it's essential for the long-term viability of Edinburgh as a city. But at the same time, I feel that we are in danger of throwing the baby out with the bathwater because there are some aspects of accommodation that relate to the festival that aren't actually part of that argument. If you already live in the city and you have a spare room and you want to let that to an artist for August, why can't you? Because it's not as if that spare room was going to be available to rental for somebody else. It's not as if your place is available for rental to somebody else. So this whole idea of having taking in an artist or a, or a technician for the month to help the infrastructure of the festival, that's something that at the moment has been caught by these regulations. But we are trying to get that changed. And there is a review starting in January of the legislation, which I and others are pressing to take out of the legislation. Tommy Shepard is a member of the Scottish National Party, or SNP, and stood back from the Stand Comedy Club and came off the payroll when he was elected to Parliament. He does still have shares in the stand and is on the board. He was also on the board of the Fringe Society before he was elected to Parliament. If nothing changes after the review in January, the legislation would likely see costs for accommodations rise as less will be on the market. It also means, as of right now, Edinburgh residents who want to make some extra money by renting their spare room or their entire place while they escape the city during the festival can't unless they fill out paperwork and pay the fee. Edinburgh isn't unique in cracking down on Airbnb-type accommodations. New York City recently virtually banned Airbnb unless a host was renting out their primary resident to two people or less, virtually banning families. The exception to this ban is hotels, boarding houses, and clubs. The result has created a black market of temporary lets with people posting on social media, Craigslist, 
that would be like Gumtree in the UK and Facebook without any kind of checks. As someone with a family, a reduced stock of short-term lets would significantly change where and how my family and I travel and potentially come to the fringe. But Tommy Shepard felt that accommodation actually isn't the biggest factor when it comes to costs. Wage rates, quite rightly, have been going up. And quite rightly, the festival organizers and the people sanctioning us are, are trying very hard to make sure that commercial operators apply statutory wage rates and that they don't try and cheat by having unpaid volunteers or whatever, that people do get treated fairly and get properly paid. But that means that the costs of actually building the stage and putting the venue on, they've gone up much more than the cost of accommodation. Uh, and that's always been a much bigger factor, to be honest, because at the end of the day, people will find a place to crash. But actually, physically having to pay the bills and the payroll, that's something you can't escape. That's there is a much, much bigger problem for a venue. In recent years, quite a few fringe venues have come under fire for low and no-paid jobs, often advertised as volunteer positions. In 2019, it was widely reported the C venues lost two of their venues, including their main site, Adam House, after their landlord, Edinburgh University, reviewed the employment practices of the venue. In a story for the Scotsman in 2019, a university spokesperson said, quote, This change follows our yearly review of tenants, venues, and operating models. With 2018's review looking in particular at terms and conditions around staff employment. A C venue spokesperson said at the time, quote, there are many venues on the fringe with a similar ethos. The vast majority of professionally managed Edinburgh fringe venues have been established with similar aims and not as suggested to exploit volunteer team members, performing companies and artists, end quote. And, quote, our festival volunteers have chosen to participate in the fringe for the benefit this brings them and our venues would not be there without our volunteers. I did not have a chance to bring this up to the venues I spoke to. However, in a 2022 article in The Stage, Anthony Alderson, who you have heard several times on this podcast, said that volunteers are, quote, at the very heart of our charity and many, quote, returning year on year. He said, quote, to lose the opportunity for people to volunteer would, in my mind, be a great loss to the festival. While it is important to root out bad practice, we must celebrate the volunteer community and those who generously give their time. In that same stage article, the Pleasant stressed that volunteers work alongside paid workers and do not run venues. Edinburgh University, the largest landlord at the Fringe, still works with the Pleasants and also Assembly Festival, the Fringe Society, the Gilded Balloon, Underbelly, Zoo Venues, and Space UK. I reached out to Lindsay Jackson of the Fringe Society and she said, quote, the Fringe collectively employs over 3,000 people, and the Fringe Society works with agencies such as Bechtu, Volunteer Edinburgh, and Equity to ensure best practices for workers and volunteers is being promoted across the Fringe. In 2022, we launched six new development goals, with Fair Work a key strand that contained clear objectives and targets. It is hoped that by 2027, 95% of paid employees across the fringe will be paid the real living wage. Every year, we undertake a workers and volunteer survey to understand workers' experience. Fair pay is, for the UK, a wider arts sector issue, and we are regularly advocating to ensure working or volunteering at the fringe is rewarding for all. I didn't see anything regarding wages for the 2023 fringe, but that's not to say the issue has been fixed. I bring this up because I cannot talk about the costs of the fringe 
without acknowledging the controversy around wage rates that has surrounded the fringe in recent years. When we talk about costs to artists and everyone surrounding the fringe, that includes those who keep the fringe going behind the scenes, and venues have costs, and people are part of that infrastructure. As Lindsay said, fair pay is a wider arts sector issue, and the arts is notoriously underfunded. And if it continues, then we will continue to have underpaid workers and create an arts ecosystem where only those who can afford it will continue to do it, stifling the variety of work that will be seen. To Tommy Shepard, MP, though, that's always been the case. People have always been uh, very keen to point out that this is an open access festival and one of its greatest attributes is that anybody from anywhere in the world can come and just start performing. There's no barriers to it. And that's true in an official sense. But to be honest, it's always been a bit naive to think that. Uh, and the truth is that the people who end up performing here are the people who can afford to perform here. And we also need to be aware that it's never really been completely fair because we don't live in a fair world. There's a lot of inequality here, particularly economic inequality, and that cuts through to the Edinburgh Festival the same as it does to anything else. And if anything, those in charge of the festival and those who put public support into the festival ought to be doing that on the basis of trying to create opportunities or remove barriers. After the break, we look at potential funding, how people make this work, or at least try to, and how Neve and Hannah address keeping afloat financially during the Fringe. Hi, listeners. I hope you're enjoying the episode. If you're thinking, that girl needs a coffee, you'd be right. Except I don't drink coffee. I actually drink tea, which is very un-American of me. But if you'd like to buy me a coffee, which I would use to buy a tea, you can do so at fringebenefitspod.com, and there's a link in the show notes. Thanks so much. I really appreciate it. Enjoy the rest of the episode. And it goes back to what I said before, which is if we can't balance our books, then the infrastructure falls apart. And then there won't be a theater for someone to perform in any. So it's a really, really fine balance. And the only way to do this is to fund it. If you track this right the way back, if you keep removing money from the arts, and if you keep making arts funding about social change rather than about putting on art, well, then this is what happens. You end up with an elitist arts-based community because there isn't enough money to go around. Anthony Alderson again from The Pleasants. As I mentioned before the break, funding for the arts is notoriously low. Some venues and the Fringe Society have programs and funds, but they can be very competitive and limited on money. Arts Council England does have funding, but you cannot apply solely for the Fringe. It has to be part of a wider project plan. Pleasance runs the Charlie Hartle Fund, which is funding directly for Edinburgh Fringe and is the largest fund of its kind. It funds emerging comedians, one theater act, and two UK-based Black, Asian, and global majority-led theater shows. Underbelly has the Untapped Award for early to mid-career artists. The French Society announced a Keep It Fringe Fund, which gave £2,000 to 50 productions and was supported by the Flea Bag for Charity Fund. There were no requirements for how the funds were spent, so recipients could spend it on accommodation, childcare, travel, PR, or whatever, as long as it was associated with performing at the Fringe. 677 productions applied. 
Summer Hall this year introduced an artist ticket scheme in which punters could choose to tack on an additional two pounds when they purchased a ticket and the money would go directly to the artist. No venue fees taken out. The other aspect of the scheme is the money will come to them directly at the end of the festival. Fringe box offices are usually settled in October. Now, the, someone said to me the other day, is that, oh, that's great. You're just advancing people money. So what's the difference? I said, well, no, it's not an advance. Brand new money, unbudgeted, extra money. But since the Fringe is a massive economic benefit, What is the UK government doing to help with funding? Recently, the French Society was awarded a £7 million capital funding from the UK government. Many in the community were left confused and disappointed, to put it mildly, as they felt the money should go to venues and artist support, especially as many are still recovering after COVID. One person told me that a fund should be created for artists and venues to apply to. When I spoke to Lindsay Jackson from the Fringe Society, she told me they had been lobbying for a long time to get the UK government to recognize that the Fringe is a UK cultural asset. They have asked the UK government to invest in the Fringe, such as direct support for artists and a shift in the way tax reliefs work, which would help venues. Lindsay also told me part of the Fringe Society's business planning has been a community hub. So we have a couple of very old medieval style buildings in and around the Royal Mile. And the UK government have made this money available to us. We, we haven't had it yet. We have to make a case for support. And I guess the message to your listeners would be that the case for support is not about a new headquarters. It's about the restoration of a, a community asset in the city that will be a hub for fringe artists and for the work that we do with fringe community groups year round. Our intention is to have somewhere that, that roots the fringe in the city and then opens its doors to the people of Edinburgh and the fringe community. And- So the French society doesn't have the money yet. It sounded to me like the UK government said, we'll probably give it to you, but you have to convince us. Essentially, yeah. We've got a lot of paperwork to do. I asked Lindsay, what does she have to say to those that feel the money should go directly to venues and artists? I don't disagree. The reality of the way the UK government issues its funding is it is capital. They won't make that kind of capital investment in that venue infrastructure. So if we turn this money down for this capital project, then it just goes back. It doesn't go elsewhere in the festival or the creative sector. It just goes back to central government. There needs to be more investment in um, fringe artists and fringe venues and fringe infrastructure. And that's what we're going to continue to do with these ongoing conversations and use the opportunities that we have to be at the table with ministers and senior government officials to say, thank you, what's next? And what does this look like for a sustained long-term investment in this, crudely put, this enormous cultural asset that you take enormous value from in terms of your branding and your cultural export to the world? When funds and grants aren't available or awarded, artists turn to their community. To do Fringe the big way, so to be at one of the top four venues, to get the billboards, the posters, all the marketing, the whole team, a PR person, all of that. I know we budgeted high, but my budget was, I think, around 15 grand. Oh, and housing, of course. I think while I was ruminating on the idea in November, December, a friend said, oh, well, you can crowdfund it. Because I said, well, who's going to cover this? I guess I'd just seen a few other friends crowdfund things, whether it was theater shows or music albums. And I thought, well, this is a pretty big common thing to do in America. So why don't I try it out here? And then I spoke to a few people who had done that for their solo shows. And that, again, was part of the journey where they went, oh, it's totally doable. That was Christina Murdoch again from Dangerous Giant Animals, the solo show that I worked on in 2018. Crowdfunding is a way a lot of shows can fund or offset funds for the fringe. Christina was able to crowdfund just over 15,000 pounds. 
I was very much in a support role for this part of the production, and it was incredible to watch Christina. She was like the crowdfunding whisperer. And this is one of the best pieces of advice that I could give to any crowdfunder, which is that some people will donate who you would never expect, and the people who you do expect to donate will not donate at all. And I think so much of it is a lot of small things, right? So it's sharing, not selling. It's... Mm building on those relationships, it's going actually, and this is, again, one of the key things you want to do for any fundraising is to go, I actually don't even want your money. Like, of course, that would be helpful, but I just want you to know about this thing I'm doing. But some people can't or don't want to crowdfund. I would think, like, I probably would have done that had I not been fortunate enough to book these jobs. You know, a lot of people are struggling right now, and I'm just kind of like, I don't really need to do a crowdfunder. So I'd rather do that at a time where I don't have access to like this sort of random money that I got. Because the thing about being an actor is that you just never know when you're going to get the random money. That's Neve Denyer again. Earlier in the year, Neve booked a commercial and then another about halfway through the year. The way I looked at that was like, I'm going to invest in myself and I have a full-time job and this money is kind of money that has come on top of that. And yes, I do have a million other things I could really use that money for. But what I'm going to do is just invest it in myself use it to go to Edinburgh. So again, very fortunate. Like that's not something that's going to happen to everybody. For Neve, part of her investment was paying £1,500 for PR. I do so much of my own work and like the that side is just so challenging for an artist to like constantly be not only trying to write a show, perform in the show, have time to rehearse it, but also be like trying to get publicity for the show and all of that. And he's been brilliant. He helped me loads with my blurb, which I know I could go on about the blurb, but like it is kind of the thing that people read about whether they're going to come see a show or not. So like, it's very important. She also brought on a director. So that's funding for The Fringe. But what about life? Neve still has a full-time job she needs and she can't leave for a month. My manager has been super supportive of me. And basically the idea is I'm going to take some of holiday and probably work from home for maybe two or three days. We haven't discussed the details fully yet, but two or three days work from work remotely from Edinburgh. So that is in itself is going to be quite challenging on top of doing the show. But I really enjoy my job and I don't want to leave my job. I'm also in the process of trying to buy a little house, a bungalow, and I need that job so that the mortgage goes through. As of now, Neve's plan is to get up, fly her for her show for an hour, do her show at 1 p.m., then log on to work two to three days a week. Just flyering and doing a show for a month can be draining. Adding two to three days a week sounds exhausting. But as Neve said, these are just things that you've got to work around. Hannah with Thistle and Rose Arts is trying her own approach to funding. After speaking to productions with all of the same problem, funding, she asked other producers, former employers, and mentors what they recommended. And they all said the same thing. Don't get involved in the fundraising. It's too much risk for you. Give them your flat fee to produce something and you can do the fringe and then get out again, but leave the fundraising to them. And I respect that advice, I do. But it felt really uncomfortable because it felt like I'd approached a group of people and said, tell me your problem, your number one problem, and I'm going to help you. And everybody gave me the same problem and it felt like I'd have to go back to them and say, well, I don't like that problem, so I'm just going to ignore that and I'm just going to do a different one. I just wasn't really willing to do that. Shortly after being given this advice and not sure what to do, Hannah was having dinner with a good friend who was also an accountant. I was explaining this dilemma to her and she said, do you know, Hannah, that one of the things I do is help companies and startups find angel investment for their startups? And I was like, well, yeah, but, you know, theatre is more risky. And she said, well, in what way? Because nine out of 10 startups 
fail. And I had told her previously, so she repeated it back to me, that 8 out of 10 shows on the West End don't make any money. So she was like, the, the stats are the same. It's just as risky. You're probably going to be looking for a lot less money than your average sort of tech startup. And I was like, oh, okay. Well, you know, if I was to go back and say to these people, I'll help you raise this money, would you help me? Would you sort of give me some guidelines and tell me what I'm doing? And she said, of course I would. I suddenly had the confidence to go out and do this because suddenly I had somebody in my corner who was filling the knowledge gaps I felt that I had and had access potentially to a community full of people who might be my my target market for investors. Hannah decided to go the commercial producer route, find investors to fund the fringe. She would create presentations, host fundraising events, and pound the pavement, as they say, to find money for the productions. Because if she doesn't raise the money, she also doesn't get paid. It was a good deal for the productions, so they accepted. Using a grant she already had in place, Hannah hired an assistant producer, Liv, whom she met through conversations she had off the tweet we discussed in the last episode. Now her production company was going to the fringe, working with five productions, acting as an administrative producer. So to continue to let the writer or the performer or the, the divisor that we spoke with to lead on the creation of the project and for us to very much support across financial management, logistical management, general management, that sort of thing. A lot of our time in the lead up to The Fringe has been spent on things like negotiating with venues, getting venue deal memos in place, drawing up budgets. So often the lead creative that we spoke to has come to us and said, okay, well, this is what I've had so far. So I've had this conversation with the venue or I think it's going to cost about this much or this is the plan that I've got so far. So now as a result of almost formalizing and formatting everyone's production budgets, we now have the default Thistlenose Arts production budget format. And so, you know, th th these things have all developed along the way. The week before I interviewed Hannah in June, she had a sleepless night worrying if she was going to be able to raise the money needed. Fortunately, a few days later, she raised 20,000 pounds in a single event, but she still needs to raise 155,000 more for five productions three of which were one-person shows, one two-person show, and one musical with seven cast members. When I asked Neve how much she was looking at spending, she said, I haven't put it all on a spreadsheet yet because I'm too scared, but it's a lot of money. We aren't leaving costs with this episode. There's no way you can with The Fringe. It's a factor weaved throughout everyone's experience. But having a little bit of understanding will help as we move forward in our story. I think in making sure that we can actually make the structure of it work in such a way that it, that it sustains itself is kind of crucial. I think that underneath it all fundamentally getting the economy to work is the key bit because if we can't get it to add up then it won't carry on and I think getting people to understand that is really important. As we follow Hannah and Neve on their journey we learn that the best laid plans and checklists often go awry. That's the point of a plan. The point of the plan is to have to throw the plan in the bin but at least you felt prepared when you wrote the plan. I'm just going to check my to-do list for today and Learn my lines, it says on my to-do list. <laughs> That's next time on Fringe Benefits Edinburgh. Fringe Benefits Edinburgh was written, reported, edited, and hosted by me, Molly Merwin. Script consultant, Tom Noonan. Original music by Colette Jonas. Supporting producer, Alex Merwin. If you like this episode, please like and subscribe and maybe give us a five-star review. It helps continue podcasts like these. Thanks. 